BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, I'm George Chen, and you're listening to SupDoc a show where we talk to our interesting friends from the entertainment world, uh, sharing about their favorite documentaries. Today, we're covering Todd Haynes' Velvet Underground documentary, released in 2021 on Apple TV. Haynes talks to the surviving members of the band and a lot of the New York art world and the Warhol factory scene about this legendary group that blended drone, multimedia, and doo-wop. And our guest is music publicist and Velvet's fan, Daniel Gill, who runs Forthfield PR and is joining us on a rainy day in Los Angeles. Hi, and welcome to Subdoc Dan. Hi, George. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, you reached out to me about this one, which is great, because like I was, I was meaning to see this. We kind of like, it came out in October on streaming, yeah. so we, we've had a little time to process and digest this one. I think the main reason I reached out is because uh, you hadn't covered it yet, and I felt like it was <laughs> yeah. it was one of the best um, music documentaries of the, of the year, at mm-hmm. least a three way tie with probably um, uh, Summer of Soul and the Sparks Brothers. I think. Yeah, yeah Sparks Brothers, I really enjoyed all, as yeah. well, and um, I feel like this came out very close to. It came out before Get Back, but I feel like yeah. there's a lot of maybe I don't know if it's similar. I wouldn't say it's similar at all to get back, but just like no. two bands that like everyone kind of lionizes. But then yeah. I realize at a certain point, I'm like, do I actually know that much about these people? Maybe I don't. Yeah, there um, were things I learned, you know, even I mean, I'm a I'm not like a super nerdy Velvet Underground fan or Lou Reed fan, but I definitely know all the records and know most of the, you know, lore. But and I've also so I should also mention sort of like full disclosure moment. I, I, I did uh, publicity. I was on the PR team for the Nico 1988 film. Right. And I put together a tribute show to Nico oh. uh, in New York City. That was pretty fun. I have some stories about that, but we probably won't even get into that. But also oh. um, I worked <laughs> on the uh, I worked PR on the Danny Fields documentary called Danny Says. I don't know if have you seen that. No, but I looked him up right after watching this, and then I saw that there was a film, and it was on Mag- Magnolia released it, and yeah. it came out what three years ago? Four yeah, years about ago? three years ago. It's really he's good. Still, yeah, it, it looks amazing because he works with. I remembered his name from writing that uh, book about the Doors. Yeah, and I didn't realize he had all these other connections to like Jonathan Richmond and the Stooges and MC Five and all that stuff. But yeah, Danny Fields. A good, he definitely stands out as a character in this. There's a lot of uh, interviews. Most of this is like it's like eighty percent like archival footage, and then like uh, a few like interviews that are beautifully shot. Yeah, with a lot of these New York art people. Did did you live in New York? At, at when I lived you were in doing... New York for about yeah. three years in the early two thousands. Right at okay. the right when like it was like the Strokes, Interpol, yeah, yeah, yeahs. TV yeah, on the radio and LCD sound system were all just starting. 
So that was fun. It was fun to be there for that moment. It was basically meet me in the bathroom moment. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, I remember some of that stuff. Do do you now what? I know you also worked on. Did you work PR in the other music doc? Yes, I did that one yes, too. Which is which we talked to uh, Rob and Paloma. That, yeah. There was a really good interview as well. Yeah. So you've worked on a lot of film documentaries. I've actually noticed like more of. The, you also yeah. worked on the Shane McGowan doc, which we didn't really yes. get to like talk about on the show. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I think you you just shared on Facebook or Instagram or something that he finally did an interview. Like yeah. he hadn't done any interviews during yes. during the Julian Temple film coming out. Yeah. He didn't do any uh, interviews at all while we were doing press on the film, but now he has a coffee table f- uh, art book out that's like retails for like a thousand dollars or something, and so he oh. yeah, <laughs> and so he finally did one interview, and it was with the New York Times, of course. That's oh, the nice. only thing that he would get off his couch for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I mean I'm I was the saga of the last twenty years, just checking in on Shane's teeth. Yeah, I was like, oh, he's got no. T- he had. The- yeah, did, you Cro- did, wait, did you watch Crock? Wait, did you watch Crock? I watched Crock Gold. Gold. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah that's Crock great. Gold. Yeah. It was great. Yeah. I also I really did the Zappa it. film, also that you did, you did an episode on. Yeah. You oh you did PR on that film. So that's yeah. interesting because the the Zappa makes a brief mention in this film as like they were the hippies. Like we hated. them. Oh yeah, we hippies. hated them, and they snuck on <laughs> they, they 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 snuck on a bill opening for or i don't know it was who a warhol it? it was a exploding plastic oh right so show or like, something. right 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 yeah i think it was that tour when that tour yeah. hit the west coast this i love the story about bill graham <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's in the we film this, yeah i was watching this i'm like some people didn't make any money doing this and then there was bill graham and yeah um there but he was apparently a- <laughs> he had some kind of beef with the velvet underground or i guess he was he was not a fan but he had booked the show in San Francisco, and they were about to go on stage, and he said, I hope you fuckers bomb or something like that. Yeah, <laughs> which is funny, because I never think of, like, the Velvet Underground as, like, bombing or killing or, like, like, <laughs> no, using, like those term and that terminology yeah. doesn't seem to apply to that band. It doesn't like, apply. Okay. <laughs> um, so, yeah, like, I know I knew a bit about the Velvets, um, more like uh, just being in you know a music fan and i'd seen uh the tony conrad documentary which i felt like there was bits of this that really overlapped with oh i really tony need conrad to see that i haven't even watched oh. that oh that's great that's made yeah. by a guy uh tyler hubby who is an echo park uh local yeah yeah he's, i need he's i really need to see that yeah because like the that's the world like the first i'd say it feels like maybe 45 minutes of the film is like just setting up uh, so it, we're going in deep into this. So if you yeah. don't know the Velvet Underground at all, let's yeah. back up just like a hair. Oh yeah, we'll back. All right, I want to back <laughs> way up. Actually, I want to back, back way, way up. up. Let's way back up. Yeah. First of all, Todd Haynes. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I read that um, Laurie Anderson actually approached him and said, "You're oh. number one on our list to For make a document, the official Velvet Underground documentary." Would you, do you want to do it? And he said yes immediately. So they never got to the any other people that were on her list. But apparently that was a, a Laurie Anderson decision. Oh, that was one question I was thinking is like I she only appears as like a still photo. Yeah. Because I guess her relationship with Lou is long Later. after the band's over. Yeah. 
But like so, as like the basically widow, does she have? Well, like, she. You know, I mean, yeah, I guess she has control of the estate at this point. The estate. Okay, right. That makes so, sense. So, um, so Todd Haynes. My first exposure to Todd Haynes was when he uh, in the early '90s. You probably remember, since we're about the same age. There was a sort of like underground circuit yeah, the, of people tape trading, like VHS tapes. Yeah. And yeah. one of the tapes that I got my hands on was had the superstar Karen yeah. Carpenter story. Have, have yes. you seen that? Yes. And I saw it again, like, yeah, like someone lending me a VHS tape. So that was that like, long ago. Yeah. Um, banned. I mean, the, the, the urban legend was this has been banned. You know, this right. is like illegal to even own it because of the... <laughs> The Carpenters right. had sued him or whatever. Anyway, um, the, and which I think is actually true. It, I believe that that's true. That's on Wikipedia. Although yeah. The film itself is on YouTube, which we should put a link to it in the show notes for this episode mm. because it is an important piece, I think, of Todd Haynes' backstory. And you can only watch it on YouTube. But anyway, um, so I saw the so if you don't know about this film, it's about a forty-minute yeah. sort of short film that Todd Haynes made when he was still uh, in film school, I believe, as a anyway, maybe in his master's uh, uh, thesis project or something. But he made this film that is sort of a biopic of Karen Carpenter and her anorexia, and he did it using Barbie dolls. And um, as he as the character is getting skinnier and skinnier, he's literally shaving plastic off the dolls to make them appear skin, skinnier. The Karen Carpenter yeah. character. It's very unnerving. It's very unsettling to watch. Um, it was really messed up. But anyway, I got I got my hands on a VHS copy of that around like, I don't know, 1996 or something like that. Yeah. And that was my first exposure to Todd Haynes. Um, and I don't think I even really put two and two together at that time about who he was or his importance. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I found out later, oh, he's the guy who did the Disappear video for Sonic Youth. And then he made, you know, um, apparently uh, I also read that Sonic Youth approached him to do the music video because they were fans of the Karen Carpenter Barbie oh. doll movie. And so there's this whole, and so it makes sense. And then he also did Is that the, the Sonic Youth video that like is kind of like a Karen Carpenter? Or No, like there's a Karen Carpenter cover or the oh, no, Carpenter's no, 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 cover? No, 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 the no, no they covered the song Superstar. They covered Superstar. That was yeah. on a... Uh, tribute to the Carpenters that was later on. Oh yeah, I remember that. Okay, yeah, I remember that was the after yeah. Goo came out. I'm pretty sure. Right uh -huh, so he did. Uh -huh. He did a video for that was off Goo. I think he may have done another song of theirs too. But mm -hmm. um, anyway, so he had the Sonic Youth connection. Then he made Velvet Goldmine, right? Which also has a character who is loosely based on Lou Reed and Iggy Pop as sort of one character that's played by Ewan McGregor. Right, and he right. insinuates that there was like a love uh, triangle thing with like the David Bowie character mm -hmm. and then this character, but that never actually really happened, apparently. Oh, okay. So that was but apparently. I, I think it was a reference to David Bowie having a fling with Mick Jagger, which did really happen. But he okay. was sort of, you know, he kind of was able to play loosey goosey with it because. Uh, these were, you know, fake characters that were right loosely based on real people, but weren't named mm -hmm. after them in the movie. <laughs> 
Right, right. So not straight biopic. I remember yeah. like, hearing that that was like more referential. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, my exposure, that's basically my exposure to Todd Haynes was primarily superstar. And like, he basically made like every Julianne, good Julianne Moore movie in the yeah. 90s. Uh, kind of broke her career, actually, yeah, it seems like. Right. And yeah, so this is his first documentary. First documentary. Um, not being super familiar with his style, I sort of think of his style as almost being like like melodrama. Yeah. Uh, and would, is that a fair assessment? I think that's pretty fair. I mean, he yeah. made like yeah, um, a, a lot of movies that would fall in that category. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seemed like that on the last few films he made, I hadn't seen them, but like Carol sounds like very yeah. melodrama. Yeah. Uh, the Douglas Sirk sort of reference yeah. that I was reading about that. So it's interesting that this is his first film. So it sounds like he actually got pitched it by Laurie Anderson, which is uh, yeah. news to me. Yeah, yeah, that makes some sense. Um, and so basically the outline, I think from before watching this film, if you, I assume everyone, if, if you don't know the Velvet Underground at a very basic level in the sixties, is like a band that came together with Lou Reed and John Cale hilariously coming out of another kind of novelty song, which we'll talk about in a second. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Uh, and then they, I knew about, uh, I'm going to get deeper into the weeds here. Angus McLeese, I thought was a big part of the story originally and stuff I read on Wikipedia, uh, mentions Angus McLeese as a first drummer. He's barely mentioned in the movie. Yeah. Barely, yeah, he's mentioned as like another roommate yeah. at their Ludlow Street uh, place, yeah. like living with uh, Jack Smith and right. Tony Conrad yeah. and John Kell. Also, like, wh- who does the chores at that house? It's like it's like the young. <laughs> I picture like the young ones of avant garde music, like yes. a bunch of like random yes. like John Kale, Tony Conrad, Henry yeah. Flint, like all living in a building together. Now um, that's so, like yeah. the perfect way to describe it, and I hadn't, I hadn't <laughs> even, ones. yes, I hadn't even <laughs> thought of that, but that's perfect. Yeah, let's call it and, the and young then, ones apartment. Yeah, and then, and then the thing that most people would know about this band would be the Andy Warhol connection. Yeah, uh, the very famous Banana Peel album cover, Velvet Underground, and Nico, and and then the the things people say about a lot of lore about Velvet Underground that didn't get mentioned at all, like. The Velvet Revolution in Czechoslovakia, supposedly named after the Velvet Underground, like Václav Havel was a huge mm-hmm. fan of mm-hmm. the band. And there's like sort of like this weird uh, like in Czech Republic, there's like these bands uh, that were all like, you know, politically active and sort of like referenced the Velvet Underground. Um, and let's remind see. me, I wanted I do want to talk a little bit about the politics of the Velvet Underground, but later oh, on. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. On. Yes. Because yeah. those take a strange turn. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. like, are not really referenced too much in this no. in this film whatsoever. No. Um, they t- they left out a lot of stuff that could have been. But but also knowing that uh, they had to get basically, I mean, you know, kind of knowing how involved Lori was in. Sure. The movie, I I'm, I'm I know why a lot of this stuff was left out, but yeah, we'll get to that later. But anyway, um, yeah. So the Vel- I guess the you know the main other thing to know about the Velvet Underground is that um, there's this quote that I don't think was in the film, but like right. you know, no one really bought the records and nobody really went to their concerts, but the ten people who did all started bands 
Yeah. Or yeah. all started record labels or they all did something with their lives in music. So basically it was it 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 uh affected the people who did hear it at the time in a profound way. Yeah, I've heard that quote as well and I don't know who that was originally attributed to, but it's become almost like just like a uh a conventional wisdom yeah. sort of thing people right. said about that band. So it's sort of like, you know, the the cults bands cult band the cult uh, band cult time. band yeah. yeah so um so yeah and then i think that the movie does uh they, he set up one very strict rule uh mm-hmm. todd haynes did when he approached this movie which was only uh the only people i'm talking to for this film are people who were there mm-hmm. who were there mm-hmm. on the scene involved in some way first person Right, which is why it doesn't have the thing that like a lot of music talks of the last several years have had the same talking heads in them yeah. over and over they again. They didn't yeah. go and interview Dave Grohl. Or, yeah, yeah you know, exactly. <laughs> thank God. <laughs> I actually really appreciated that aspect of the film uh, in a big way because actually mm-hmm. what he ended up making, the film he ended up making because of that rule was a lot artier and a lot more like of a combined Andy Warhol slash Velvet Underground documentary than than mm-hmm. what it would have it it's not I mean so actually I watched the Sparks Brothers uh, mm-hmm. a, a little bit after I watched the Velvet Underground and I was like man they don't really I mean it was a great story <laughs> but they had so many talking heads it was like I don't really need to know like what Patton Oswalt thinks about Sparks right, right. that that was <laughs> a big I critique love, I heard of don't that give film. me wrong I, I yeah, like yeah. Pa- I like Patton no 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 nothing funny. against him. Nothing like, against Patton. I'm just yeah. using him as an example, but it's like, you know, there were so many talking heads. It was just overwhelming. And then That's, this. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, no. Like I was thinking, too, like that was Edgar Wright's first documentary as well. Yes. But that really like it played with the form a little bit in terms of like there was a lot of like animation and a lot of different stuff like that. But then it really like fell victim to some of these tropes that I think keep happening. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, oh, so the the Velvet Underground doc starts with this crazy clip of John Cale <laughs> yes. on a talk show or a game show called right, "I've Got right. a Secret," and um, the secret that he supposedly they don't play they don't really show the guessing game that the contestants yeah. have to do, but apparently the contestants were having to guess what his secret was, and the secret was that he had just performed an 18 hour concert of Eric Satie music. <laughs> and right, then the right. other guest or the other guy who was next to him. His secret was that he was the only person in the audience <laughs> to make it through the whole 18 hour performance and yeah. without leaving. So, um, and this was a U.S. CBS like network television event that I couldn't believe I mean, I think the absurdity of it is the reason Todd Haynes opens with it, because the fact that this was on CBS in whatever year it was is insane. And um, there there is an absurdity, I think, and like comedy to some of the John Cage uh, or like early the new music avant garde where it would be like instructions to destroy your piano with an axe, which also gets referenced, which I think was a John Cage thing. Um, anyway, so they're, they're, they're sort of setting it up so that John Cale 
is the avant-garde element yeah. of the Velvet Underground, which is definitely a overriding theme. Um, John Cale brought the the noise, the drone. The he was the one who was hanging out with Tony Conrad and Lamont Young, and like yeah, you know, like studying all this stuff and brought that side of it to the band. And I think it actually is also the reason he was kicked out of the band <laughs> because he was like. Tech, he was technically the most accomplished also, yeah. right? He was yeah. classically trained in viola. Yeah. He said he was like trying to do these Paganini pieces yeah. and stuff when he was, when he was a kid. So yeah. Um, yeah. No, I mean, that's definitely how it's set up. It's sort of set up as like Lou Reed is like kind of working class, like New York guy, like Long yeah. Island maybe. Yeah. And then like, Kale is Welsh and they make such a big deal of him being Welsh. He's like, yes. Oh, he's, he's so Welsh. He's so worldly. You know? <laughs> yeah. Like what I always think of the Welsh, very worldly, but, um, no, it's so they, pretty, they it's, do, he does take a long time. The whole, I mean, uh, the first, like, I don't know, 45 minutes of the film is a lot of setup of like this, like, yeah. Art world, avant-garde noise scene, kind of like, I, mean, I actually, I don't think any, mainstream piece of art has spent so much time on like Tony Conrad and Lamont Young and like these characters. Yeah. I actually like, like that's why I feel like the overlap with the Tony Conrad film is like pretty interesting. It's like, yeah, yeah, like uh, Apple TV is paying, like Apple TV is paying paying. for us to learn about like (laughs) the deep, like New York. Yeah. Like people that were like super, super deep in, in the underground. Yeah. That is, that was like, one of the crazier things, I, and, but also I feel like he wouldn't have had time to do that in a two hour doc if he had done the, you know, talking head route. Right, right. So That's I true. appreciated that. And it was also, yeah, I mean, think about how many kids uh, watched this film and were exposed to all these crazy people that otherwise they would have no idea about anyway. And I like um, that. That's not that's not like. Todd Haynes's generation either at all. Right, like that's right. not, the, that's not his generation or his experience. He's like right. very, he's a bit younger on the younger side of this. Like I was just watching, I was trying to explain, cause I watched this with my wife and was like trying to remind, remind her who Jonathan Richmond was. Yeah. <laughs> cause he's also makes a great appearance in here. And I've known for a long time that he was super obsessed with the velvets. He, he's probably seen them the most out of anyone that wasn't in the velvet underground. Yeah, I was wondering if he like followed them around like the dead or something because he said he saw them sixty or seventy times. He must have been following them around, or like being or just, in Boston and being able to go to New York and probably see yeah. them if they played in like Providence or played in Connecticut or something. Yeah, but they also would do these residencies, right? Uh, you know where they would play every single night for a month, and so he must have just been been around. Maybe he would just go to New York and camp out with some a friend and go every night. I could, I could, I could definitely picture that. The um, Polish home shows. Oh yeah, uh, you know Dom, that was right. Dom. Yeah, I, I, I actually uh, lived when I lived in New York. I lived on the Lower East Side and I lived near there, mm. and I went to a couple of events there that were pretty fun. Um, Yo, did and, you ever do the? Sorry to cut you off. Do you? Did you ever go to Lamont Young and Marianne Zazila's like 
dream house thing you can no, just go I and it's never, like an apartment where it's just like a drone happening yeah. all day long and like i think i like found out about it too late i found out like <laughs> yeah. i found out about it literally like right after i moved away and i was like oh damn uh, it yeah. or they or they stopped doing it right around that yeah. time yeah i think they took a break from doing it yeah. the last time i was in in new york was like in 2017 i was just like oh man we should have just gone then if they were doing it then but it, it yeah. seemed to like to take a uh, little breaks here and there yeah it also seemed like a very big time commitment. Like if you went there, <laughs> you would probably need to stay for, I don't know, at least over an hour or more. Yeah. I love that they all, they reference like using the refrigerator hum as the tuning. That's like, a tuning tone. fork. There was a tuning yeah. fork. Yeah. Um, no, I so love any, that stuff. Yeah, I love all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it takes a really long time to kind of set up the, I think, okay, so here's the other, so I have heard some complaints about this film okay. and I guess some of them are that, uh, they spend too much time building up the, the gestation of the band and, um, and basically it's a long winded explanation of how the Velvet Underground and Nico album came together. And then mm-hmm. the subsequent albums only get about five minutes. I, I agree with that. Like there's sort of like it sort of blows by a lot of this stuff. Like I said, there was like, you know, chunks, obviously, like I'm saying like this thing like Angus McLeese, like, yeah, I read like he actually even rejoined the band for one of these residencies like in Chicago. Yeah. Like Lou was out and then like they moved to him playing drums, Mo doing bass and then John as a lead singer for like this Chicago residency they did. And yeah. that was like in 66 or something. So like he yeah. came back in the fold even gets nary a mention. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think there, that is true. And like even a lot of stuff that like I wanted to dig in a little more, maybe it's all the post, the post band stuff. Like they just kind of show like, Oh, he, John and Lou got back together for this songs for Drella record. Right. Oh, like, you know that they don't really explain Right. I mean, I remember this thing where they they got the core four people back together in the was it in like early 2000s that they yeah. did that? Yeah. Yeah. To play. I don't know what it was like a tribute or was it like some some Andy no, tribute? I think or it was like, like, well, I think the Drella album was a, a tribute was, to Andy Warhol. Right. That might have been like 89 I think there was a proper show that was turned into a live album. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was later. That was like a proper Velvet Underground reunion. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, none of that stuff really gets any any time in the film. Uh, they kind of just they they set up. They they basically introduce the band one by one. John Cale mm-hmm. really gets the most air, uh, screen time. Well, not only because he's still alive and he was able to be interviewed at length. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of footage of him. And he has probably yeah. one of the more interesting backstory. And then he was only on the on the first two records. Right. And then right. so I think part of it was also setting it up that for that drama of him getting mm-hmm. kicked out of the band. And anyway, so we should so we should back up for one second there. Um mm-hmm. should we play a clip? Oh, yeah. So I did want (laughs) to. Yeah. Like we kind of mentioned this. This is hilarious to me. And a part of the story I did not know. What's this group that gets put together? It's Tony Conrad, John Kale, Lou Reed. Uh, I think the other guy was maybe Lou's like college buddy. Yeah. And then they get put together with Lou to uh, buy this uh, record company called Pickwick. 
which uh, Lou, Lou Reed was working there as their right. in-house songwriter. It was kind of like <laughs> KTEL Records, like where yeah. they would just re-record hit songs of the moment and put them out as these compilation albums and sell them for 99 cents at the drugstore or whatever. Yeah, It yeah, was yeah. kind of like the the 50s or 60s version of Spotify playlists. <laughs> <laughs> like like right like the ones that are just ai generated yeah yeah, like or, yeah. Or, or the mood mood generated or or is actually what it was is the uh the now that's what i call music series you right know? yeah <laughs> yeah just like very budget produced uh hits but yeah, yeah lou was like also the fact that lou was like an in-house like kind of like you know Pop songwriter, drill building <laughs> pop songwriter makes very little sense based on what we know of him now. But yeah, um, yeah, they put together, they just jammed and came up with kind of a novelty song called right. the Ostrich, which yeah. I under guess the, has an accompanying dance. <laughs> they were playing under the name The Primitives, not yeah. to be confused with the other band, The, the Primitives, who yeah. were like the in the eighties in the UK. Uh, but yeah, actually, I noticed those songs are on Spotify and in YouTube and stuff. So uh, yeah, look up the primitives, the ostrich, and here's we'll a little clip in. of them. Yeah, here's yeah. them talking about it, and a clip of the primitives. He had a vision. He was talented beyond his talent. If you understand what I mean, he can't sing. He can't play. But everything he does in that craggy voice of his resonated with me. With Lou, we were going to blaze a trail, which eventually he did. Tony got an invitation to a party. We went up there, and this guy comes up to us and said, Hey, you guys look very commercial. Would you like to come and promote a record? Now, come out to Long Island City. And it was Pickwick Records, and their songwriter at the time was Lou Reed. When I met Lou, there was a lot of eyeballing going on. So we had coffee, and I had my viola. And I started playing sort of classical viola, with this heavy vibrato, and really sound like really classical and good and all of that. And Lou said, shit, I knew you had an edge in it. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off-limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook, with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. 
The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. I want to say one more thing about the ostrich. <laughs> um, the importance of that of that moment in history is that that was the first time that John Cale and Lou Reed played together and met each other. They met each other because somebody had recruited uh, this band that John Cale and Tony Conrad had that right. to come. They said, you guys look like rock and rollers or something. <laughs> and like, yeah. you want to come up to Pickwick Records. And, and then Lou, they met Lou Reed there at Pickwick. Uh -huh. And then basically they recorded two songs, The Ostrich and then The B-Side. And then they, uh, you know, started playing together. And then I guess as that happened, Lou kind of like casually mentioned to John Cale Hey, I've got these other songs that I've been working on that are like too weird for Pickwick Records. What do you think about these? And he showed him like Heroin and Venus and Furs, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. John Cale was like, oh my God. Okay. So that's like the birth of the Velvet Underground in that moment. Yeah. And I love that also. Like, what did John Cale said? He said, you know, these lyrics are really put together and very dark and the music's not as dark as the lyrics are. Yeah. Yeah. And that led to bringing, uh, yeah, I think of like the core of the band seems to be at the beginning is like the, the dynamic of those two, right. It was sort of like yeah, yeah. the avant-garde minimalism and the kind of like love of like kind of old timey rock and roll. <laughs> that's yeah. at least that's like kind of like how they frame it. I'm sure like, you know, Lou was pretty hip to other stuff that was gone. I mean, he made metal machine music eventually. Yeah. So that's yeah. the part that I'm like, I'm like, uh, you know, I, I think it's sort of maybe an undersell to like, say, uh, like John was all, but also like you said, John's alive. Uh, yeah. I think I'm thankful yeah. there's more John kill than there is Maureen Tucker in this film. Just guessing, uh, based on, uh, things I've read about Maureen Tucker in the last few years. Right. But, um, yeah, Lou is like a huge piece of this that is like sort of absent, but um, I mean, I just realized like how much stuff happens after the Velvet Underground breaks up. They just show he's like, oh, at the end, they're like, this guy put out 22 albums and, yeah. and like uh, 22 the, studio I mean, I albums. Think, yeah. So here, here's a part of the thing. I think that each of them individually probably deserve their own documentary. Totally. Totally. You know, um, it is an Avengers problem, essentially. <laughs> it is. It is a Marvel. You know, it's the Velvet Underground cinematic universe that we're yeah. in now. Oh, I mean, love, actually, if the you, Tony Conrad is like the Sony Spider-Man movies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So actually, if you think about it, uh, Nico already has oh. two films about her. She has yeah. a documentary, Nico Icon, which is great. And. Mm. 
Uh, and then Nico 1988, a biopic. So right. she kind of got two movies before the Velvet Underground even got their one proper movie. I, um, I, I would argue I know I was having trouble Googling this. I saw this film. It's kind of a third film that is kind of like a velvet gold mine ish version. Like it's like not called Nico, but it's uh, a character that's based on Nico. And I saw it like 12 years ago and I'm really it's in another language. I'm really having trouble nailing it down. I'm really going to start Googling and trying to figure out what this film was because I remember okay. seeing it. And like people are like, oh, this is basically about her. She's like a, a rock star heroin addict. And like, yeah, like that's but it's like it's French or German or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think I know what you're talking about. I oh, forgot yeah, the name you, of you it. Also. That one too. Yeah, um, yeah. So actually, it is kind of strange that it took this long for there to be a Velvet Underground documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, obviously, Lou deserves his own, if there if there was more. Mm hmm. Uh, footage of him talking and being interviewed. I think they would probably have maybe included some of that, or maybe he would be getting his own Todd Haynes documentary to follow up this one. I don't know. I don't know how long Todd Haynes really wants to hang on this one topic, but I also like I've, he's probably done with it. I've heard, and you would know, you know more music writers than I do probably at this point, like that he was a very notoriously prickly interview. Have you heard this before? Louis, for Louis, yes. yeah yeah that's like sort well, of that, maybe this this is a good time to talk about yeah. about that <laughs> <laughs> lou, lou reed was definitely uh, a prickly personality in general yeah and i think they get into that a little bit in the film but they don't really talk about like the fact that he was also abusive uh to some of his partners oh. and he also had this sort of like um, a couple of times, you'd, there's some theories about him being a racist, but hmm. uh, that and partially well, maybe, uh, well, I don't know. There's a couple the of side. reasons why yeah. he may have been, uh, that may have been accurate. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, Interesting. And then also, there was also some kind of misogyny with, um, you know, him not wanting, uh, well, John Cale definitely did not want Mo Tucker to be their drummer because she was a chick drummer. Oh, there was John, that side of it. Oh, that did not John get Kale. mentioned. Yeah, wow. That does not get mentioned. That's yeah. true, though. He was like resistant to it, and mm-hmm. they kind of lied to him and said, "Oh, don't worry, it'll just be like temporary." You oh, have to just like deal with it for like a little bit, and then we'll replace her. Do you think it was maybe because he was homies with Angus McLeese though? That could have been maybe and maybe but well, it came no, the out reason that way, he, yeah. the reason he gave was that she was he didn't a, want a female drummer. Oh man. And John, then, John, John. Um, and then there's also, you know, Nico was like a Nazi sympathizer. Did you know that? I didn't <laughs> that definitely <laughs> I I feel like I would have remembered that, but then again, I I did also just watch the Von Dutch documentary and I completely forgotten that was part of that story too. That there was like a there was yeah. like a Nazi sympathy. Well, she's German. Like what? I didn't. I don't know the backstory with that. I just remember like yeah, she is. She would have been well a child during. I didn't realize this. Or two, yeah, yeah. I didn't. I didn't really realize this, but then uh, I had agreed already to work on the Nico 1988 uh-huh. film, and I yeah. didn't know this about about her backstory. And then 
people started emailing me. Oh, no. Hey, have you ever, like, Googled, like, Nico and Nazi sympathizer? Because you probably should. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Well, I mean, the fact that Laurie Anderson is, like, a co-producer on this, I understand, like, why that doesn't get mentioned at all uh, yeah. with, with the well, Lou stuff. I've, and then the Lou stuff is, is, a, is all a little vague, but mm-hmm. there's definitely some... Uh, some stuff about him abusing partners and I'm not even, I can't remember which partners, um, Mm. but more than one. Yeah. Um, His girlfriend from like his like college era girlfriend, she's interviewed early on in this, like in the first 10, 15 minutes, I think. Yeah. And, uh, his sister is mentioned. They talk a little bit about like the, the like shock treatment that he got, which is like all like, you know, like gay panic stuff or like, yes. you know, yeah, it's like homophobic. Right. Um, yes. He was definitely bisexual. Yeah. For yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, but they, yeah, I guess like, uh, at the time it was like, Oh, we're going to do the shock electroshock therapy to try to, to rid you of your homosexual tendencies. Mm-hmm. That's very, uh, disturbing. Yeah. But anyway, so there's a lot of parts of the Velvet Underground where you kind of have to like mm. if you have to separate the art from the artist, <laughs> which I know is very difficult for like this current uh, you know era we're in. But it's like yeah, if you if you want to if you really want to maintain your fandom of the Velvet Underground, there's four different people involved that have. Oh, and then we didn't even talk about Mo, Mo Tucker, Tucker and her. <laughs> And tea party. Uh, she became like and, a tea party person. I remember. Yeah, she, she was, was definitely, definitely a vocal advocate of the tea party and uh, which sort of kind of led into Trumpism. I don't know if she went, went full MAGA or if voted for Trump. I don't know. But she was definitely uh, not a fan of Obama. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I don't I don't I don't. She doesn't claim that. I think I read it. I just reread an interview that she did where she said, I'm not really a full Republican. I only really am, am going along with this tea party stuff, which I mean, is almost worse. Right. Yeah, so like, yeah, <laughs> like it's just the racism um, part. Yeah. 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 So, um, well, there's a line. It's funny. There is a line that I was kind of like laughing at. Then just, I remembered like, Oh yeah, she, this fully may be part of her, her political view when they're talking about going to California and like, mm-hmm. you know, peace and love and all that bull crap. And I'm like, Oh yeah, yeah. that makes sense now. Cause this is like the most, yeah. this is maybe like the rhetoric of like Mo Tucker now as well. Yeah. Maybe at the time or like there's sort of like this sort of, okay, there's something that's brought up that uh, is brought up early on. I think it's by kale and it's an interesting, I've thought about this with punk as well. And they're kind of proto punk in a lot of ways. He's like, yeah. it's good to have something you're defining yourself against. Right. Cause yeah. then you, you own you have not only you have a definition for yourself and you have something to challenge or like to strive against i guess i I think that sort of sort of makes sense but like that's sort of like negation right and like that's a very core punk thing as well and i can sort of see like some of their world sort of fitting into that like like the uh, right and and uh we okay, so I think I'd break this into like a third. The middle third really kicks off with uh, Andy Warhol and Factory. Yes, yeah. because there's yeah. they're a oh, band. Yeah. They're a band that's been doing stuff. 
Yes. It's just they get introduced to this scene. So, so uh, there's a key, there's a key pivotal moment that I had mentioned in my notes that um, is basically when this woman, Barbara, Barbara Rubin, is that her name? Yeah, Barbara Rubin, yeah. Okay, she uh, goes to see the band when they have their first residency in New York at Cafe Bazaar, and she is a uh, kind of a already an active uh, participant in the factory, friends with, tight friends with Warhol, tight friends with Dylan, and a filmmaker of her own. And then she goes to see them. She really likes it. And she goes back to the factory and she basically makes a big announcement. Hey guys, there's this amazing band playing downtown. We all need to go see them. They're called the Velvet Underground. So that was kind of like, um, you know, if you think about it in today's terms, you know, obviously in those days, pre-internet and mm -hmm. there was the gatekeeper yeah. mentality was uh are they cool enough to be considered cool by the factory and andy warhol right so like <laughs> they were kind of like like uh like andy warhol was kind of like the illuminati of the of the day like what he had considered cool was cool automatically i i, I was just saying that because this is the second time i've watched this i've for, sort of forgotten the scene where it's like uh, you know, like model-esque women coming down to the factory to be looked at, to be seen. Yeah. And I'm just like, oh, this is like, it's such like influencer culture. This was like, it's he's, in, very, yeah. he's the first guy, right? His 15 minutes of fame, everyone off 15 minutes of yeah. fame. It, that, all that stuff kind of came true. Yeah, that's a, yeah. that is a good point. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say, as a publicist, now, if you look at this, this idea of like breaking a band in like 1967, like like it's got to be completely different because like, you know, like there's no there's like it's going to be like Rolling Stone or something is like your main thing you have to do. Were you thinking at all about like kind of like your work and your world at all while watching this? Um, it reminded me of some kind of, you know, the time I didn't spend a lot of time in New York, but the three years I was there. There seems to be this kind of like uh, gatekeeper men mentality, especially in New York City, where it's kind of like um, uh, a band or a new solo act or whatever doesn't really take off until certain people in the upper echelon gatekeeper world are are down. You know what I'm right. saying? Like, yeah. um, like, like uh lcd sound system would maybe be a good example of like um watching their ascent you don't really see them going crazy until like um the the owners at bowery presents start booking them all the time and booking them at like they have this thing called siren fest that the village would put on with the village voice and they would you know, give them the headlining slot or the slot right before the big, bigger artist or whatever. And like, especially in the live music world and at press, they, those two kind of go hand in hand where there's a lot of people who make the big decisions, like who's going to go on the cover of Rolling Stone or Spin and who's going to go uh, on the, the best slot at the music festival. A lot of those people are friends with each other and kind of like reading each other's notes so if an artist makes it to that crowd, mm -hmm. it's kind of like that Barbara Rubin moment yeah. that I just talked about yeah. is kind of like the moment where they were put on, Yeah, you know, she put them on. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what the kids would say now. now. <laughs> Who put you on, you know? Right, right. Like, like Barbara Rubin put them on to Andy Warhol and to all the factory people. And so then it became a whole thing where all the famous people would go into their shows and Andy became interested and, you know. That, without, without that, that happening, happening yeah. they probably, probably break, break up, up and, and we never, we hear, never of hear of them. Right. Without that one moment. Yeah, in time. that's like so, that is a, such a pivotal moment in the story. And they seem to all know that as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's not like oversold. It's like, yeah, yeah, this is why there is this documentary now, essentially, at yeah. like this moment. Um, and, and yeah, like as close as. People like, you know, like Tony Conrad's not like a household name the way Andy Warhol is, you know. Right. So that's like that just would have been a different uh, thing altogether. So, right. So we have Andy Warhol enters the the, the scene. And then um, one of the things that he does at the urging of, I believe it was Paul Morrissey. Well, Nico had been hanging around the factory for a little bit. Um, and so Paul Morrissey said, Hey, Andy, we should really get Nico to sing with the Velvet Underground because none of them are very good looking and we're not going to be able to sell this band or get them signed or get them on tour unless they have like an attractive member. <laughs> so basically then Andy, so then Andy Warhol goes to Lou and basically has to beg him on hand and knee to like let Nico sing with them. And then and then they talk about Nico like not really fitting in and they took him took a while to figure out how to use her voice best mm-hmm. with their style of music. And then John Cale kind of figured out to like have her sing in the lower register, like the more droney style singing that she ended up being her trademark. So anyway, that's yeah. a pretty interesting chapter of the film. I had totally I did not know that she already had like a single out like in right. Germany also. Right. So she wasn't like a complete like beginner to She had to already stuff. been in big movies yeah. too. Right. Like and she'd already done two or three films. And she was friends with Jim Morrison, uh I was reading as well. So yeah. yeah. She I mean She definitely wasn't a nobody yeah. <laughs> at that time. Yeah. Uh, it still took a lot of convincing for Lou. I think for Lou I just get the sense and they don't they do kind of say like he's kind of a control freak. He's kind of like, you know, a micromanagey person. Yeah. Or yeah. I mean it sort of comes across that that's the case. Yeah. Also, he wanted to be the rock star. He was right. like he very said much that and they, do, yeah. they they say it very clearly, like mm-hmm. his goal in life was I'm gonna be a rock star. Yeah. I don't care how I get to that point, I'm going to be the star. And he, he pulled it off. I like a <laughs> You know, for someone to pull that off, like to the level that he did, um, yeah. where you could still put out metal machine music and then still put out albums after that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, no one really, there's no comparison. There's no one else had a career like Lou Reed. There's no one else in rock history that you could even compare him to. Mm-hmm. Like it's a singular career. There's no one else. I mean, not even Bowie or Eno or anyone like, doesn't I don't think it even compares. Oh, you know what is also interesting about this film is a lot of the Warhol footage. Um, the way everyone's introduced is essentially Warhol would do these really long take like f- like film portraits of people. So like yeah. you start with this like pretty I've seen this before this Lou Reed 
like still photo or it's not it's, it feels like a still photo but he, you can see him blinking before i had gone to the factory i had seen warhol's kiss there were no titles i had no idea who had made it and it was a weekly serial so that every week a two and three quarter minute roll shown at proper speed, which was 16 frames a second. The thing that's always interesting about the Warhol silence is the reason they're unreal is they're supposed to be shown at 16 frames a second, which means that the people in those images are breathing and their hearts are beating in a different time frame than yours is while you watch it. And that creates an incredible sense of aesthetic distance. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. There was an interesting moment um, where uh, they talk about the the extended time of the oh, Warhols. Yeah. Of the uh, this is one of my uh, one of my clips. Um, yeah, so they they kind of talk about the concept of extended time, where right. Warhol would film things like the the kiss, uh, which was basically just these slow motion, long, drawn mm-hmm. out images of two people kissing and they took it and slowed it down. Um, and basically that was kind of the, uh, film version of drone, mm-hmm. which yeah. obviously corresponded with what, um, corresponded with what, uh, John Cale was bringing to, um, you know, yeah. the band. Yeah, like because like the, yeah, the viola is notably absent on the unloaded, right? There's like no viola on there. I don't think. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's well, a Doug Ewell um, record. Yeah. Yeah, and the other, you know, I guess also now mentioning Doug Ewell, he's the only person who was approached to be a part of the film and declined. Uh so all his interviews are basically like yeah, archival, archival from other stuff. Yeah, yeah, that's um, interesting. He it is I, weird that he was given the opportunity to be part of this and didn't want to. <laughs> yeah, that is strange. It's, uh, stylistically, because there's like very little, I think we'd say in terms of what we're used to with, you know, a band from the 70s or 80s, you probably have a good amount of live footage. There is live footage of the Velvet Underground, but a lot of it is um, you know, on film. And yeah. there's not that much of it. So I think that led to Todd Haynes choosing to do things slightly differently. Like, I think, yeah. I think like you were saying, this is, it's good in a sense that like the only talking head interviews are people that were actually in the scene, like Mary Warrenov, or you've got, 
you know, uh, yeah, like, you know, Sterling's wife or, you know, yeah. Lou Reed's sister. So people that could give you that character. Jonas Mikas, who I guess passed away in yeah. 2019. Um, He's interesting in the yeah. film. I watched a little short thing about him. Um, you know, I, I had not seen his films. I've heard his name in reference a lot in terms of art stuff, but yeah, I'd not, yeah. I didn't know much about him. Um, yeah, there's sort of like once they're in, it's sort of like once they are in the Warhol sphere, you're right. They, they kind of have ascended to at least people know who they are, even though they said stuff like, like they got signed in a way to like, just keep them off the street, which I love does as a line. The, my favorite part of that was how they said they probably wouldn't have even signed us unless uh, without knowing that Andy Warhol would do our album cover art. Right. Yeah. And that, and that Nico would be in the press photos. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I think that was maybe a Mo Tucker quote. It was a good one. Um, uh, yeah. So, you know, they, they got signed to Verve and, um, and they, they don't actually, one thing I was a little bit, uh, they are they're they're missing from the film a little bit is they don't really interview like anyone from the record label mm -hmm. or like like people who maybe were doing their marketing or uh anything like that yeah. because i guess i don't know if any of those people are still around i would imagine there's still some people around well what is danny field's relationship to well, them he was really just friends with them okay he wasn't like he, in he their was employee. the manager of the ramones and he mm -hmm. was also the guy who signed the stooges and the mc5 mm -hmm. on the same day i think uh or on the same trip to detroit mm -hmm. he signed both bands but he did not have a, a actual as far as I remember, I don't think he had a working relationship with the Velvet okay. Underground. Mm -hmm. He he's known as like the creator of punk because of the Stooges MC5 thing and Ramones, and then he yeah. also is the longtime manager of the Ramones. Right, and he there's a famous story where he played a cassette. I think it was a cassette. No, maybe not. I don't know. He played a recording of the Ramones early on for Lou Reed, and Lou Reed said, "This is <laughs> fantastic. This is oh. the best thing." This is the best band I've ever heard or something like that. Oh, okay. Um, or the best thing you've ever played me, Danny. Because like they were friends back from okay. early days. I, that's Danny not, would, yeah. Anyway. Okay. I, was I was just expecting all the, the Lou Reed kind of like negativity vibe would come yeah, out. Yeah, no, that's why it's yeah. a notable thing because he didn't <laughs> like a lot of stuff. <laughs> I've heard a story which may be, you know, it's a very third-hand story, but I I, I think uh, the story I'd heard is that, you know, Eno Quintron uh, from New Orleans I, had yeah. sold a, a drum buddy to Laurie Anderson oh, wow. and, and went to deliver it and, like, hung out with them. <laughs> Oh wow! This is like a very third-hand story. I, I like yeah. to think it's. I like that's to picture probably, it being true, though. Yeah, that's probably true. That's probably true. Like yeah. she would love like buying a drum buddy. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. So a, a, as the film goes on, then there's like a you know people just start getting thrown off the train as it goes. Uh, first, you know, Nico leaves. Kind of like it doesn't seem like a big you know, crisis when Nico leaves, she just kind of seems like she's on her own trip. Um, I think like Andy getting fired is, and Andy getting fired as a manager. I still don't quite understand 
what the thinking was here, other than okay. maybe just ego, right? I have a theory. Okay. okay. After watching, I've watched this now like three times in preparation <laughs> okay, for this. Yeah. So now I'm, I have a theory that's developed, which is basically that, um, you know, they, they first of all, they go out on this tour, right? It's mm-hmm. the Exploding Plastic Inevitable Tour, mm-hmm. whatever, uh, the variety show. Andy's on the tour, and um, they're, main, they're mainly playing in art museums. Right, that Andy book, and, right, yeah. and then And then places like that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then usually uh, everyone would come to s- just to see Andy Warhol in person, and then they would, and then the Velvet Underground would start playing, and then half the crowd or more would leave. Right. Because they were not the rock and roll crowd. They were the high art crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, they were the high end, you know, art crowd of whatever city they're in. So, sure. so the touring was not great. <laughs> they did not, you know, uh, they didn't have any songs on the radio at the time. Obviously, they didn't have a hit song or nothing. The radio was not playing the records. Um, yeah. Then there's the whole story of them recording White Light, White Heat, which I was glad to know why that record kind of sounds like shit. <laughs> um, there's a, a good explanation for that in this film. Did you do you remember that? I know that I don't. I remember them saying they're on speed. But that they, well, oh, they, the guy leaving the room—that's what it was, the, right? The yeah. engineer was so disgusted <laughs> with them and their weird sound that he said, "I'll just turn on, I'll hit record. I'm gonna walk out and take a smoke, and you guys can do whatever. Just tell someone come grab me when it's time to hit stop." Yeah, that's right. And that was how that record was recorded, and they basically everything just turned all the way up into the red. With no, like, control over it at all. Anyway, I love that record, actually, mm-hmm. just some of the songs on it. But but there, but there, I knew there had to be, like, an, a reason why mm-hmm. it sounds, uh, it's recorded so poorly. <laughs> and there is a good reason given in the film. Yeah. So they explained that. So that, so that, so the experience up to that point, those are the two records that have mm-hmm. John Cale. Mm-hmm. Uh, Velvet Underground and Nico and White Light, White Heat. Those are the only two records that have John Cale. Mm-hmm. Uh and then, and then basically Lou Reed is unhappy. I think Lou Reed is unhappy because all this artsy-fartsy nonsense, mm-hmm. the John Cale element, the Andy Warhol element, are getting in the way of his vision of being a real rock star. You know, he wants to be Mick Jagger. He wants mm-hmm. to be David Bowie. He wants to be that level, and he's yeah. not getting there with these with lizards. This, this weird-ass <laughs> band art people. Even though, right. like... Like in his mind, in his mind, in his yeah. mind, right? Because it's like, I feel like the art angle for pop music now, or maybe, maybe not all pop music, but I, I think like there is like, it's like art's kind of cool, right? So it's like, it's, it's, but it is a different audience, right? Like it's an audience yeah. that just wants to come to be looky loose, essentially. Yeah. Um, which I re, you know, I, I've definitely seen that happen in other scenarios um i was thinking of like when uh there would be this one time in san francisco like matthew barney had this huge show at the sf moma Mm -hmm. and so him and bjork were like djing at this famous gay bar the stud and then there's just an insane and i went because my friends wanted to go and just an insane line of people to just go watch these two famous people like DJ and like Matthew Barney's playing like black metal or whatever. 
but like people are just surround like and like yeah i'm i'm also part of this like i want to see what bjork is playing on her ipod yeah. or whatever i think it's a it's it's a funny crossover thing I'm trying to think of people that have actually like been successful in both those things in like the modern era um you know people that are well both, so yeah. this also brings up another thing which is uh, well i guess let's finish up that that chapter yeah. of the film so Basically, after White Light, White Heat, uh, Lou, uh, after a gig or something, Lou takes Mo and Sterling out to a diner and says, you have to choose. You can either <laughs> yeah. you can either go with John Cale and, and can continue a band with him, or you can stay in the Velvet Underground with me. <laughs> and he's the singer, so, yeah. you know they kind of have no choice because without Lou, you don't have the Velvet Underground. Right, so, right. Um, it's kind of interesting at that moment, they just basically say, I guess you've got us in a place where we can't really make an easy decision, but the only uh, the only decision is really to uh, stay with Lou and continue mm-hmm. the Velvet Underground. And he doesn't, he doesn't tell John at all. Like, John finds out right. from Sterling that he's, yeah. like, out of the band. He finds out from Sterling that he's out of, he's been kicked out of the band and then replaced by Doug Yule. Mm-hmm. And then, um, then they make the Velvet Underground self-titled record, which is mm-hmm. a really good record. Yeah, it's a good record, um, yeah, yeah. And Classics. it has... It does have some weird, like that, uh, the murder mystery song. I, I always thought that was, like, John Cale weirdness, but... Clearly, he wasn't on the record, so yeah. that was just Lou Reed being weird. He was definitely capable of being weird and artsy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, still without John around, but mm-hmm. any, anyway. Um, so then they make uh, that record and Loaded, and then they're done, right? Is that right? Is there, I think so. Just I, this? Did they do a record without <laughs> Lou? Is there like a? Is there a record without? I don't think they do a record without Lou. No. If there uh, is, it's not mentioned in this film. Yeah, I, which actually, makes sense. I, I should know this, but I don't. I, um, I, I, I feel like I should know it, too. I, this is basically <laughs> been like, I'm like, I hope I hope I know it a little bit about this band. I think I know about this band, but then yeah. after watching this, maybe I don't know as much as I thought I did. Um, I definitely felt uh, that after watching this film that I didn't know as much as I thought I knew about mm-hmm. about all of them. Um so anyway, so then you've got oh, and then at a certain time, I I think uh, there's oh, I have it in the timestamps written down for uh, Andy Warhol being fired. Right. I yeah. think that he fires Andy Warhol um, in a moment of panic about his mm-hmm. career, about his chances of becoming a rock star, and and. Yeah. Uh, and he's tired of being known as like the band that Andy Warhol champions, like the house band of the factory or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like he's just tired of like that being the only thing they're known for. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so basically I think, um, you know, they, they said something like Luke, I think it was a John Cale quote or was it a Sterling quote? Was it, it Ster- I think it was Sterling oh. maybe talking. And he says, Lou went kind of crazy. Oh, right. And had this angry discussion with, with Andy behind closed doors and fired him as our manager without discussing it beforehand with any of us. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, well, at the first time I saw the film, I'm thinking, you have to be crazy to fire Andy Warhol <laughs> as your band manager. <laughs> 
But I think the more I went back and rewatched that part, I, I starting to understand that Lou was just frustrated that um, they weren't really taken seriously by mm-hmm. the music world. They weren't being played on the radio. Uh, Andy wasn't really a music guy. He didn't know how to manage a band, really. He knew how to get you cool points in the art world. Right. But, you know, he didn't know how to promote a band properly. He obviously didn't know how to promote a tour. Um, the, and it, there was a so, note about like how he produced the record. He's like, uh, yeah, he was breathing in the room. <laughs> that was like a right. He quote. got production credit for yeah. the Velvet Underground and Nico, and he didn't actually really do anything. Yeah, it, it, it was just <laughs> being in his orbit, essentially. Yeah, just being yeah. in the same room as him. And it does seem like the the friendship between Lou and Andy continued later in life, mm-hmm. uh, even after he fired him, because there's a scene at the end of the film where they're kind of talking, and yeah. this is post-Velvet Underground, post, and Lou is like, it looks like from Lou's haircut and stuff, this is maybe like Transformer era that's what I was thinking too, but or then like it's I think Andy looks like he's in very poor health, so I'm thinking it's one of these kind of like maybe deathbed hangout or something, like just like yeah, yeah. Do you hear from these guys? Do you hear from these guys? Right. Like, it's kind of yeah. felt like that to me, but yeah. yeah. But then his nails were like yeah. painted, and he had the short hair, and he looked a bit young. He looked like a '70s era, yeah. So yeah, uh, it it was kind of heartening to see that like you know he did have these you know other that they had these moments where they kind of like were able to get along after the fact i feel like it's just one of those things where like just time passes and you're just like okay with people like like, what do we fight about what was that about you know yeah it could be one of those things so back to the you you brought up a thing about what other bands have had like one foot in success and one foot in the avant-garde and the only other band I could really think of is Sonic Youth who are the obvious sure. mm-hmm. like you know carriers of the torch of the Velvet Underground they're like mm-hmm. New York cool mm-hmm. they all do side projects and they do noise and drone and they champion younger artists and they mm-hmm. definitely know like what's going on in the underground and uh you know, I really think they modeled the, themselves after the Velvet Underground in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's totally. Yeah, the New York angle of that also being very much the case, and like, yeah. you know, like like Jim O'Rourke is like in it, so he's kind of like uh, like uh, you he's, know, a, he's their Tony fifth, Conrad fifth wheel, like a Tony Conrad, or then like yeah, uh, yeah. So uh, plus, then, I mean, I mean, I I personally didn't really find out about John Cage or. Mm-hmm. Stockhausen or or Lamont Young or or stuff like that until I got into Sonic Youth in the mm-hmm. in the early nineties. It was through listening to Sonic Youth that you find out about all these other things. That's true. Um, That's totally true. Yeah, they're a good gateway for a lot of stuff. They're the gateway sure. yeah. drug. Yeah. I mean, then they basically you know ushered in Nirvana and um, a lot of other younger bands. You know. Yeah. By yeah. taking them out on tour. And I mean, even like the, the boredoms, they right. took the boredoms, <laughs> you know, they took the boredoms on tour or, yeah. you know, whatever. They introduced a lot of people to a lot of weird stuff. For sure. I, I definitely would say I'm in a camp of, of, you know, our generation probably that's like a, a key, key, uh, way to find out about that stuff. And like the New York angle, I think as well, like sort of like even just like, you know, my, 
fantasy world of New York is very like the Velvet Underground, you know, television, like all like yeah. all this stuff, you know, like it just yeah. like in my imagination, in Sonic Youth too, like just in my imagination of like what New York was gonna be like, is yeah. all this stuff for sure. So it took a little while for that for another band to kind of pick up the torch and run with it, but I think, you know, I mean, Sonic Youth was playing in the what 1980 1981 somewhere i think i think like right maybe 81 82 also like in a weird way does that mean like the swans is like the theater of eternal music dream music or whatever like weren't they all involved in like reese chatham and bronca and like the swan and like the swans i think everyone like i think lee and and thurston all had some foot in that as well Yeah. yeah definitely glenn bronca was like probably the the instigator to to you know to them he is to sonic youth what uh, lamont young was to <laughs> yeah. the world underground <laughs> this yeah. is like a very s- specific kind of podcasty type of sentence that you will not hear anywhere else like yes, yes. glenn bronca is like the analogies of glenn bronca to uh, lamont young um also like lamont young and tony conrad famously did not get along right that was that was my understanding Oh, I don't know a lot of the politics of the insider uh, avant-garde, avant-garde world of who didn't like who. I think it's sort of this thing about like this is improvised music, but he Lamont took credit for it. I think is this, uh-huh. that's the story I was I was told. Anyway, like it, it's good for this is a good film for like nerding out on that stuff. Um, yeah, and like yeah, like Todd Haynes. I didn't. I guess he ha- he must, he's a huge he obviously made based a character in a film on Lou Reed. So like, this is like, makes sense. This is like, kind of like yeah. his, his scene. Um, yeah. Stylistically, it's got a lot of cool, like split screen and like kind of does a little bit of like in the beginning, I was like, are they doing the kind of thing that everyone does? Like there's like the Kennedy assassination. Like every film like just has to time code itself, but like nine 11, the Kennedy is like, you know, something like that. Yeah, but then right. they also, then they're just like, Oh, here is like, Harry Smith animations. He was like, like Nam June Pike, like, like really focusing on like the art world aspect of it. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. They don't really timestamp it to political events really. Generally. Yeah. I don't think so. Like it it was just that only in the very setup. And then I realized that second time watching it, because there was some stuff I'm like, on the second time watching it, I'm like, Oh, this intro, they're showing Nico in like some German, commercial or something also and they're showing everyone kind of uh early on yeah um would you recommend this to someone who has no concept of the velvet underground or do you think it would just be like a little a little uh too insider for the, for someone who's like not like your kids would you show your kids this um anytime my kids walked into the room a couple of times while i was watching it and it was all like weird artsy warhol footage on the screen and they were like what the what the, <laughs> what are you watching? You know, like, You're like I have a podcast um, to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, I'm doing research. <laughs> Just leave me alone. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it might be a little, uh, a little too deep into, uh, yeah, I don't know, into the avant-garde world, especially for the first like 45 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I think it kind of like picks up speed. And I and I think also like Jonathan Richmond is so charming in it. <laughs> and like um, he kind of steals the show. A lot he of does. people said that on Twitter, I think, yeah. you know. Um, so I, I do think that there's something to be 
uh, gain from it if you have no uh, familiarity with the band. I, I do still think it's a great piece of art. Yeah. Uh, and also, I mean, there's definitely... Andy Warhol is fascinating to me hmm. on many levels. Uh, just the the whole mystique about him and, and like how he basically ran New York, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, um, it's, it's fascinating. So like, if you want to know more about Andy Warhol, this mm-hmm. it's like I said, it's almost as much of a Warhol doc as it is a velvet underground doc. Yeah. I, I felt that as well. Um, Dan, uh, we play a game on this show where we cast a doc. Gotta cast this And I, this, yes. like you said, you already worked on the uh, Nico biopic, which I believe yes. is a German actor plays Nico in that. Is that right? Danish. Or Danish actor. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, but here's the thing. <laughs> I was thinking about this. So I was, I, I came up with my casting. Yeah. And um, first of all, if Todd Haynes is listening to this or, or if Laurie Anderson is listening to this, you have to give me credit because this yeah. casting is perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I actually cast it in a very serious, uh, like thoughtful way. Like, how, who would you cast to play the young version of all these characters? Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm. So here's what I came up with, and also, so I did not choose the same actress who played Nico in Nico 1988 because mm-hmm. that's sort of the older Nico. Mm-hmm. So I, for for Nico, I picked Ruth Radelette, who is the um, singer of Chromatics, who just broke up because she looks almost exactly like Nico. Yeah, I've seen her um, billboards. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she look and she has the same haircut. I mean, she's almost styled herself to look like a Nico. Um yeah. I don't know how her acting chops are, but I'm sure she sure. could pull it yeah. off. Yeah. Um for John Kale, I have Adam Driver. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I see it's sort because of like the, the weird shape of their the really high cheekbone weird face. The facial shape, yeah. shape is there. I think uh, the large Adam's apple is there. <laughs> yeah. Um, a lot of, and also Adam Driver just seems like he can do anything. Yeah. Um, I can see that. Another person who seems like he can do anything, Ram, Rami Malik, I have as Lou Reed. Yeah. I, yeah. That's a good one. I, he, he's very deadpan, but that, like I could see. That's how Lou see that is. Working. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. very deadpan. That's true. Yeah. I mean, and also in a, in a lot of ways, the way that he played Freddie Mercury uh, was kind of similar to how I could see him playing Lou Reed mm-hmm, mm-hmm. without the mustache. Yeah. Um, though I picked a kind of obscure person to play Sterling Morrison, this guy, um, Craig Roberts, who was the star of this movie called Submarine. Do you remember that movie? I, oh, Submarine, the British. Is it British yeah. film? Yeah. Is it, is it um, was that directed by... What's his name? Craig what? Uh, Craig Roberts. Roberts. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna do a quick Google on this guy. Yeah, I, I think I want to say okay. that was like directed by um, the guy from IT Crowd, maybe. Oh yeah, I could sort of see that. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. Um, also, for Doug oh. Yule, I picked Jason Schwartzman, although he's probably too old at this point to play. The way the game the works, it, yeah. The way the game works, it can be kind of like anyone from like from any time in like you know. Yeah, they're yeah. they're like you say young Seymour Hoffman or something if you wanted. Yeah, right. Um, 
Then for Andy Warhol, this is a really good one. So mm. I have Matthew McFadden, who is Tom from Succession. Is he like Welsh also in real life or something? I feel oh, like he's he, Welsh. I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of, um, yeah. No, but uh, no, for Andy Warhol, not for John Cale. Oh, oh yeah. For, for, yeah. As a Warhol. I could say, yeah. Like uh, Tom, Tom from Succession. Yeah. yeah perfect. I, I see like. Just imagine him with the Warhol <laughs> wig on and yeah, the glasses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's like good to go, right? And yeah. a little bit paler, maybe. Yeah, definitely pale. Like Bowie plays uh, Warhol in uh, the Basquiat movie, right? Yeah. I'm that's my favorite. Who, that's my plays, favorite yeah. performance as of anyone playing Warhol is actually Bowie playing Warhol in Basquiat. Basquiat. I'm trying to remember, like, there is a movie, I Shot Andy Warhol, where it's a Lily Taylor, yeah. isn't it? I don't remember who plays Warhol in that. Do you? That person, wait, I'd have to look it up, I'd but that person did a pretty good job playing yeah. Warhol. I really like that movie, and mm-hmm. um, I saw it in the theater, I think, when it came out when I was yeah. in college. Um, I should have rewatched that one in preparation for this, oh, but I forgot there's to. so much. I should have watched every single yeah. um There's so oh, many oh, Jared things. Harris played? Oh, my God, Jared Harris, who's, like, in every... Science fiction franchise now because yeah, he's yeah. in like uh, the uh, the Expanse and stuff. Yeah, um, he did a great job as Warhol. I thought that's a funny. That's a funny. Although cast not man. as good as Bowie. Yeah, Bowie as Warhol was really funny and 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 looked the he had the right look too. So okay, I have a couple more. I have um, Timothy Chalamet as Tony Conrad. <laughs> I, yeah, I could kind of like Tony Conrad like. He, he's I kind of he's not awkward, really camera, like, yeah, but he's kind of got like a little bit of an attitude, yeah, yeah. Also, Timothy Chalamet is just in everything now, so you have to <laughs> yeah, put him he in. Would be, yeah. You have to throw him in, yeah. Then I had um, for Lamont Young, I, I picked either John C. Riley or David Cross, yeah. Oh, uh, they'd have to have like the full beard, you know, right? Right. Um, <laughs> do you have any other names for that? I one? had, I didn't. You know, the, I I thought of a couple of people. This is very random, but I thought like maybe Eric Idle for Sterling Morrison. It was like yeah. looked at an older picture of Sterling Morrison. I'm like, oh, Eric Idle would be super interesting. And then yeah, I thought um, I was trying to think of someone for Jonathan Richmond, and at a certain angle, I'm like Steve Coogan, and I think he could just do it. Like you know, yeah. I didn't just, even go that far as to yeah. casting Jonathan Richmond, but. <laughs> I know. Um, Oh, so my last one is Mo Tucker, and I picked Vanessa Bayer from SNL. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, She's her cherubic, yeah. Because she has that, yeah, I felt like there were some photos of Mo in the mid-period mm-hmm. where she kind of reminded me of Vanessa, um, and she has that innocent yeah, kind of like uh, look to her, and I think mm-hmm. that Vanessa could maybe pull that off. Anyway, yeah. Um, yeah, that's my casting. Yeah, thanks. And and uh, Dan, <laughs> would you want to plug uh, the project that you're working on? Uh, in addition to uh, being a publicist full time, you're also producing a podcast. Yeah, so I just started producing a podcast called Discography. Um, about ten episodes up now. Uh, basically, I'm not on as a host. Um, it's the two friends of mine, uh, Dave and Joe, and they basically kind of do these listening trawls through artists' entire discography, and then they rate each release like zero to five stars. And then at the end of the podcast, they give you like the top three picks for like the must-own albums 
and then the worst and then their pick for like the worst album like album to avoid album you don't need to own from this mm-hmm. artist so like we started with like pink floyd mm-hmm. and then went into like cocteau twins and did wow. beck and then we did um recently we had uh spiral stairs from pavement on and oh. and he did roxy music with with the hosts oh. um so basically from this point forward we're we're trying to do more guests where we have the guest on and have the guest choose the artists that we're talking about and then kind of all three combine their uh comments and their recommendations. Mm. Uh so anyway, it should be interesting to see how that goes. We have we actually already have a, a really good interview recorded with John Landis. Oh where he talks about yeah, where he talks about Paul McCartney, who he uh, directed a video for, How'd and then you, we got. <laughs> How do you yeah, book Tom I mean, Landis on a podcast? <laughs> we booked, yeah. That we, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> D- D- Dave, the one of the hosts, is is friendly with him and just <laughs> called him up. And I don't think he's ever even really done a podcast before. So, oh, wow. uh, yeah. Anyway, we we're doing some interesting stuff um, there. We're gonna cover like. Uh, Betty Davis and the raincoats and um, there's a three parter on the or two or three parter on the Bee Gees catalog coming up, which is another one which which were like I'm kind of like at a loss. There's so many Bee Gees albums. Which ones are great? Which I don't even really know from that early period when they were more like like the birds or something. Mm-hmm. The folkier era of the Bee Gees. I don't know really which records are the the ones I need to own and and not. So even for myself as a fan, I'm finding this podcast to be useful. Yes, yeah, <laughs> um, and I think that, it's yeah. also it's aimed at uh, you know either people who just have an um, artist missing from their knowledge base and they want to know what's you know where's a good place to start. Or people who are just getting into record collecting for the first time and they want to just have three records by, you know, right. Van Halen or whatever, right. but not every single one. <laughs> oh, I could have totally used this when I was learning about bands because I remember people being like, you know what a good band like Gang of Four, P.I.L., uh, yeah. you know, the Mekons or whatever. And then I'd be like, I don't I got a, I got a P.I.L. record. It kind of sucks. But right. it's like it's like an eighties PIL. Oh, you got record. the wrong one. I got the wrong one. <laughs> like like oh yeah. Like people like Gang of Four is amazing. I'm like I don't know. I got this Gang of Four record. Like oh that's not the one to get. I'm like oh yeah. fuck. I keep you got to get entertainment. <laughs> yeah, no, I was off. I when I got entertainment, I finally got it. But um yeah, yeah no, that's right. a great great public service to all the, it is. the new yeah. the new record buying public the people that get the get a Crosley for your uh, your kid off to college right. or something. Um, right. Yeah. So that's, I think Velvet Underground, that'd be a good one. You got, you had four records to choose from for Velvet Underground too. So the only, you, yeah, you know. I think that we, we've been, we've talked about doing Velvet Underground. The only reason we haven't done it so far is that all, all the albums would just be five stars. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all good. Five stars, five stars, five stars, five stars. Yeah. They're all five star records. So there's no bad, there's nothing bad to say really other than like, like I said, white light, white heat, wasn't recorded in the greatest way, <laughs> yeah. but it's still a five-star record because the songs, the songs are yeah. undeniable. Yeah. Anyway, so um, so that's the podcast, Discography. Uh, there's discography.com, and then it's Discography on Twitter and Discography Pod on Instagram. Awesome. Well, and then there's new episodes every Sunday night. Man, 
That's good. That's going to be a That's a challenge to keep a, to keep a schedule for podcasts. So I'm told it is. I'm, I'm yeah. told. No, I that's, know. Oh, oh, another, another exciting thing is that we're going to do all of the solo albums of all four Beatles. Ooh. Yeah. Which is going to be like, Oh my gosh. A seven part series or something. Dude, we got, you know what, we, you're, you're, you've been a great guest, Dan. I want to have you back on the show sometime and we can talk, we can talk about some of your other favorite, uh, docs that came out. I, I saw a couple of them we've talked about on this show, like, uh, yeah. some kind of heaven. We did a little crossover episode with uh fraudcast talking about that. Um, right. and obviously get back. We're going to have to talk about seems to tie in at some point. Thing, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to us about Todd Haynes's Velvet Underground. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about Subdoc at subdocpodcast.com. Our theme music was written by David Siegel, and our executive producer is Will Scoble. Our associate producer is Nick Coltus, and our editor is Karen Hogg. Donate to the show through our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Podcast. If you want to help out in other ways, please share this show with a friend. Join the Doc Talk and check out our hot takes, pictures, and videos on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. We're SubDoc Podcast on all those platforms. Don't forget to rate, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts. Find Paco and George's comedy gigs on the About Us page on our site. SubDoc is by Doc Fans for Doc Fans. So if you want to advertise, got a film, or opinions to share, hit us up. We'd love to hear from you and what you're docking out on. Email us at subdocpodcast at gmail.com.